I want to talk to you about the significance of the meal. I don't know if the, the title, I don't think, popped up this morning, but it, I want to talk to you about the meaning behind a meal. And of course, it's pretty fitting because we just had a meal this week of significant meaning as well. And then we find our place or find ourselves in a similar place this morning in the text. And so if history is, hasn't been rewritten yet, and Johnny, I guess you can tell me later on whether or not I got this right. If my history checking was true, the first Thanksgiving was celebrated by the pilgrims after their first harvest in this new world, October 1621. And it was actually a meal of worship. They wanted to worship the father for the harvest that they had given him. And it lasted three days. And I included this to say this, we're getting ripped. Because I could easily do what we just did for three days. I mean, think about it. We ate, we watched football, and we slept. And we woke up and we ate again. I could do that all day long. Theirs lasted for three days. We've cut ours down to one. But those that were attending the first Thanksgiving, I think, could teach us something as well. There were 90 Indians, Native Americans, if you prefer, and then 53 pilgrims. So it was a great crowd of people that gathered to worship God and offer him thanksgiving for the harvest. Interestingly enough, and I had to bring presidents into this issue as well. The one who was responsible for writing the Declaration of Independence, that one, Thomas Jefferson, did not celebrate Thanksgiving. He chose to not allow it to be a part of the American celebrations. And he was quite the knucklehead. I think he would outpace easily the knuckleheads that we've had as presidents the last few years. Jefferson took a pair of scissors and took a Christian Bible and cut out everything that he did not like. He took out all the miracles of the Lord Jesus. He wouldn't include any of them. No resurrection, no ascension, no turning water into wine, no walking on water, none of that. Jefferson cut and pasted his own Bible that only included the moral teachings of Christ. Can you imagine if one of our presidents did that in this day? We would come unglued. But that's what Jefferson did. He was a fool. Thanksgiving wasn't celebrated on a regular basis until we got to Abraham Lincoln in 1863. And fittingly, that was right in the middle of the Civil War. And so this is what Lincoln said. He proclaimed it a national day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent father who dwelleth in the heavens. And then he called on all Americans everywhere to humbly repent for our national perverseness and disobedience and implored God to intercede on our behalf to heal the wounds of the nations. And Lincoln declared it then the last Thursday in November. Now, it wasn't until Grant, though, in 1870 that he signed it into being a national holiday. So we celebrated this week a very significant meal, a very important meal that we need to continue to recognize. But there is a much more significant meal that we'll celebrate this morning. It's a much greater day. We have much greater reason to offer thanksgiving to God when we gather at this table of the family of God. Our redemption is represented on this table. Now, as you know, typically we're in Luke 22. And if you'll notice with me there in verse 1, it says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. I'll explain both of those. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put Jesus to death, for they feared the people 
And then you'll see verse 3, Then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So, I didn't want to go there this morning. For this reason, verse 3 begins the betrayal of Jesus. At the conclusion of the Lord's Last Supper, if you'll notice verse 24, if you have subtitles, it's who is the greatest. And so a dispute arose among the other disciples about which one of them was the greatest or the best. That is followed in the very next section of verses by Peter's denial of the Lord. And so I wanted to group all of those together, the betrayal, the argument, and the denial by Peter. And when you put all those together, you'll appreciate even more so the magnitude of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. He went to the cross alone and he died alone as everyone around him was seemingly falling apart. And so, Lord willing, we'll talk about that next week. But this week, in the middle of all that mess... The Lord comes to the table and he comes so with just an eager anticipation of what he's about to do. In other words, all that's going on, the Lord drew near to his table with excitement in his heart. Notice verse 14 and 15 in chapter 22, if you will. He says, when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. Before I suffer. So the Lord had a lot going on, but one of the things that it was going on was a joy in his heart because he was about to sit at the table with the disciples for the very last time and offer thanksgiving to the Father. Now, to understand the eagerness of the Lord, why he was so excited and anticipating this moment, you have to understand the first Passover before you can understand. This last Passover that our Lord celebrates. So go with me to the book of Exodus chapter 11. Now I'm not going to read all this. It is quite a bit. So I'm just going to offer you a little bit of backstory to catch you up. And then we'll talk about the significant moments that we'll find in Exodus 11 and 12 and 13. And really, you've got to start with the beginning of all of God's people, which was one man, and his name was what? Abraham. Abraham had two sons, right? One by the flesh with Hagar, named Ishmael, and then one was the son of the promise, Isaac. And Isaac was born to Sarah and Abraham when it was absolutely not possible for them to have a child. And yet the Lord in his power worked an absolute miracle, an extraordinary thing. And so Abraham and Sarah had Isaac. Isaac had two boys, Esau and Jacob. And as you know, the Lord chose one of those boys, Jacob, to be the one to receive the promises of his father, Abraham and Isaac. Jacob had 12 sons who became known as the 12 tribes of Israel. And out of those 12... Joseph was the one that the Lord used to rescue his people. Now, at first, the Hebrews sent by God down to Egypt were favorably accepted by Pharaoh and all the Egyptians. Remember, the Lord had Joseph put there beforehand. And Joseph is the one that brings all the people of God down to Egypt to rescue them from the famine. So the first generation, when they got there, they were all readily accepted by this entire nation of Egypt, right? 
But as one generation passed into the next generation, that favor began to fall. And it wasn't long until the Egyptians hated the people of God. They despised them. And so they conscripted them into slavery. They forced them to be oppressed in slavery. Now, by the time we get to the book of Exodus, where we are this morning, the Egyptians had enslaved God's people for 430 years. That's how long they had suffered under the oppression of the Egyptians. Now, the good thing about this is this. Exodus is a book about deliverance. And so when we read this story, we understand that God is about to do something on behalf of his people. And so through Moses, God's selected deliverer, God performed 10 plagues of judgment against the Egyptian people and their gods in order to free his people. The last plague... I want you to notice with me, Exodus chapter 11, verse 4. It was the plague of the death of the firstborn. Let me begin reading just a few verses, Exodus eleven four. So Moses said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, as has never been, nor will ever be again. But not even a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And so after Moses had said that to Pharaoh, he left Pharaoh in hot anger. Of course, you know the rest of the story. Pharaoh refused to humble his heart in order that the Lord might accomplish his purposes. Now this is where things really take a turn for the people of God, because God is always faithful to prepare his people for what he's about to do. And the way that the Lord prepares his people for this last plague was with the Lord's Passover. Now this event was going to be so significant that it was going to reshape their living. It was going to take place on the first day of the first month of their calendar year. Moving forward, this was going to be the significant day that began the rest of these days. So on the first day of this month, Every household of God's people was to select a sheep or a goat that was a one-year-old male and that was absolutely perfect in every way. It had no blemish, no spot, or any such thing. So on the first day, they chose it, but on the 14th day, they slaughtered that lamb at twilight. And they had to be careful, and many of you men can appreciate this, they had to be careful when they slaughtered the lamb because they could not break one of its bones. Not when they slaughtered it, nor when they consumed it, could they break one of the bones of the lamb. After slaughtering it, they were to take the blood from the lamb and they were to put it on the doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they would eat the lamb. Then they were to take the flesh and they were to roast it on fire and they were to consume every bit of it. If they could not, if the family was too small to consume all of it, they were to work alongside their neighbors in order that everyone might sit down together and consume every bit of that sacrificial lamb. They were to eat it along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And that meal was the beginning of seven days of a feast known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. 
Now, I don't want to lose you here. When I talk about this feast of unleavened bread and when I talk about the Passover, we're talking about one and the same thing. It began with the Passover meal and it continued for seven more days with the feast of the unleavened bread. It was all together. Now, there were other details about this Passover meal that was very important. One of those was who gets to participate in this meal, Lord? If I have an Egyptian friend that I really like and he hasn't been mean to me, he's always cared for me. Can I invite him to my house? And the answer to that was absolutely no. No, the only people that can participate in the Passover meal were the men who had been circumcised, who were a part of the nation of Israel and their families. That was it. No foreigner, no outsider, no uncircumcised man or his family could ever participate in this meal. The duration of the meal was also set. This was going to be a memorial day and they would keep it throughout every generation as a statute forever. Every year, first day, first month would begin this process that they would celebrate what the Lord was about to do. Now, the elements of this meal were very significant. In fact, the elements were a matter of life and death. Think about this. The lamb, it was certainly a matter of death for it. It was both two things. It was both a sacrifice and a sign. The lamb was a sacrifice and it was a perfect spotless substitute for them. It was going to be the lamb's death in replace of the man and his family's death. The lamb was a substitute. It was going to be a sacrifice. But it was also going to be a sign for every family. If you'll notice with me in Exodus 12, look at verse 12 with me. The Lord says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt at night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Now notice verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So the lamb served more than one purpose. He was going to be the substitute to die in their place, but he would also be the sign because his blood would be seen when the Lord sent the angel to kill every firstborn. And when the angel saw the blood of the lamb, he would pass over that house and none of the firstborn would die in that home. So the lamb was a matter of life and death, but also really the unleavened bread that they were to eat in the seven days following was a matter of life and death. Now, they celebrated again for seven days. But in seven days, they could consume absolutely no leaven. None. You know what leaven is? That's what's used for fermentation. When they would make a lump of dough in order to bake it and make bread, they would take out part of that dough and keep it off to the side. And as the days passed, that dough would sour. That's why we call it sour dough. And it would ferment. So when they would come back next week to bake more bread, they would get that sour dough and they would mix it in with the new dough in order when then they bake it, it would act, well, it's nothing more than yeast. It would cause the bread to rise. But the Lord said, I want you to discard every bit of leaven in your houses. You cannot eat leaven for the seven days. So they ate this bread that was flat and it was round and it was baked entirely of flour and water. 
without any fermentation. And as I said, it was very important. Look with me in verse 18 of chapter 12, and you'll get a little bit better of our understanding of why it was so significant. Exodus 12, 18 says, In the first month from the 14th day of the month at the evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day. There's your seven. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your house. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a sojourner or a native, you shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall only eat unleavened bread. Now the significance of that, Moses explains in a little bit more detail in Deuteronomy 16 when he says this, it is the bread of affliction because when you came out of Egypt, Basically, you were making haste. You were running. And you get the picture. There was no time to leaven the bread. There was no time to go back and get some leaven and mix it in the dough and bake a, bake, bake a loaf of bread. You had to get what you had and go running out of Egypt. They had to make haste. And the Lord wanted to remember how they left out of Egypt. And so he refused to allow them this process that it would have taken time. Other important things, the entire meal itself was very powerful because the meal would remind the people of God of two things. And if you catch nothing else this morning, I want you to hear these two things. The meal would point to both a rescue and a deliverance. If you say, isn't that the same thing? Well, almost, but it's a little bit different. If you'll notice in verse 27 of Exodus chapter 12, you will see the rescue. The Lord says, you shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, and notice these last four words, but spared our houses. They were being rescued from the wrath of God. So when they saw the sacrificial lamb and the blood that was put over the doorpost, they were being rescued from the wrath that God was pouring out. He was about to slay every single firstborn man and cattle alike. Servant and leader, Pharaoh, nothing mattered. Every firstborn was going to die. And so in order to rescue his people, the Lord had a sign. They were spared the judgment of God. The second thing that the Lord's Passover was, was a deliverance. Notice Exodus 13 verse 9. Exodus 13, 9, it says, And it shall be a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial before your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth, for with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. There's a deliverance. I'm delivering you from Egypt. I'm rescuing, from, rescuing you from my wrath, but I'm also delivering you from slavery in Egypt. Hopefully, if you understand the gospel, you're already making some very significant connections, right? This great rescue and the deliverance that the Lord was about to perform on behalf of his people was not only the most significant moment in the history of the nation, but the Lord wanted it proclaimed to every generation that followed. Notice with me a couple of passages. Exodus 12, look at verse 26. The Bible says there, when your children say to you, what do you mean by this? They would explain everything about the Passover. Notice another passage, Exodus 13, 8. Turn over there with me. 
You shall tell your son on that day. It was because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. The Lord did not want anyone to forget his great rescue and his deliverance, rescuing from the wrath to come and delivering them from their own slavery that they found in Egypt. And their responsibility, listen to me, their responsibility was to teach their children in order that their children might teach their children and their children might teach their children so they would not forget what the Lord had done. So that was the first Passover. But in Luke 22, we have what is called the Lord's Last Supper. And it was going to be the last time the Lord participated in this Passover meal. So go with me to Luke 22 and that will catch us up this morning to where we are. Gospel of Luke chapter 22. Now a little bit of backstory here because I gave you some years when I walked through Egypt and that story. I told you that they had been in slavery for 430 years to Egypt. By this time, when the Lord sits down at the table, it had been a little over 1,445 years that Israel still lived under a curse. It was not the curse of slavery, but it rather was the curse of their sin under the law. They still remained under a curse and they had to be rescued and they had to be delivered. Now, I find this fascinating as I was going through here, and I'm still giving this a great amount of thought. Israel was in Egypt for 430 years from Malachi, the last Old Testament prophet, until John the baptizer came preaching was 430 years. And during Malachi to the gospel of Luke, God said nothing. He was absolutely silent when he brings the Passover lamb into the history books again in the Gospels, right? So just like Exodus was a book of deliverance, when we walk into the book of Luke or the Gospel of Luke, it too is a book of deliverance. Moses was the deliverer in Exodus, but Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the deliverer in the Gospel of Luke. And now everything is going to be replaced with that Passover meal. Now, as the command of God to keep the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. If you remember, and you probably don't, I had to look it back up. In Luke 2, even as a child, Jesus kept the Passover. In Luke 2, 41, it says, Now his parents went up to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And then we catch up with Jesus when it says, And when he was 12, he went up. So this has always been a part of his life. He was always faithful to the commands of God. He never broke the law of God. And so when we get, and this is mind-blowing to me, he's about to die. And Jesus in faithfulness keeps the commands of God and he observes the Passover with his disciples and he's going to die before the feast is even over. But yet he walks into the obedience with joy in his heart. Because he wants to please the Father in all things. So he will begin the meal and he will partake of the Passover lamb with his disciples. And then he will go out and die as the sacrificial lamb for the people of God. The elements would be there, as I said, but they would begin to begin. They would begin to be replaced. The sacrificial lamb would be replaced. 
Remember, it was the substitutionary sacrifice. Its death was given in exchange for their life. But rather than a spotless lamb that was blameless, now there would be the spotless son who was blameless in every way, who was without sin entirely. And rather than an animal dying for men, which could never atone for sins, now a man would die in the place of mankind. That's why God had to become a man, because he had to die for the sins of men. And this man, as I said, came forward without sin, and yet he would die for sin. And Luke doesn't want you to miss the connection. Without coming right out and saying it, every time almost he mentions the Passover, he mentions death because he wants you to see the death of Christ in the place of the sacrificial lamb. Look at Luke 22 verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death. Luke's not going to separate those words very far. Look at verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread in which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Look down in verse 15. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Luke keeps repeating these words because he wants you to understand what God has done to rescue you and deliver you. I didn't mention this when we were in Exodus, but it comes back to mind now. They had to select the lamb, if you'll recall, on the first day of the month. And on the 14th day of the month, they would be the ones to slaughter the lamb. And they would be the ones to apply the blood of the lamb over their own homes. That's not the case in the Gospel of Luke. God has selected his lamb. And God will be the one who will put that lamb to death. And sacrifice that lamb. And God will be the one to apply this blood. And you and I are left with but one thing. Faith in the work of God on our behalf. This is a great day and this is a great meal. And Jesus paints the picture for us so beautifully if we'll but pay attention. So there was no lamb to be sacrificed. No blood to be applied. The Lord had done it all. Now the bread and the wine... They would be much, made much more significant. The bread is no longer significant because it was unleavened, but now because it represented something much more glorious, which was the broken body of our Lord. The wine would become significant because it would remind us of the shedding of his blood that was poured out for us on the cross. Notice with me verse 19. Luke 22, verse 19, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 20, likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, the cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The broken body, the shed blood we partake of in order to remember, remember. You remember how significant that was in the book of Exodus? I want you to remember, so what were they supposed to do? When your child asks you, what are we doing? I want you to tell them what the Lord had done for you. 
And when your son asks you, what does all of this mean? I want you to tell your son every part of this so they will understand what the Lord has done for you. When we come to the table, we're called to remember. And if you're a wise parent, you will teach your kids what the Lord has done in order that they might teach their kids what the Lord has done. So we will be found when Jesus comes again, being faithful to tell what the Lord has done on our behalf. But there's two, two times this phrase is mentioned in 19 and 20, and that is for you. His broken body was for you. His shed blood was for you. His death was for you. And I could not get over that this week. For you. And that comes to every single one of us individually. And it comes to every single one of us faithfully. He died for you. You can never get over that. And if you ever get over that, you have never known that. Because Christ has died for you. And you have to understand the judgment that you were under before Christ died for you. If he had not died, we would all be damned. If he had not died, we would all be consumed in the wrath of God. And we would never, never be delivered from our own sin. We would be consumed with guilt until we died. And when we died, we would be met with wrath. That would be a miserable, miserable existence. But listen, Christ died for you. And that is the greatest thing I could ever tell you. And it is the greatest thing you could ever tell your children. You telling them that you love them is not the greatest. You telling them that Christ died for them, that is the greatest thing you can ever tell them. It was for you. Now the meaning behind the meal, <laughs> even more significant, because if you remember, as I said often, the meaning behind the first Passover was rescue and deliverance. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, just in his introduction, Jesus is he who rescues us from the wrath to come. Deliverance, both Passovers were marked by deliverance, right? The first was from slavery in Egypt. The last was from slavery to sin and death. The first one was a physical deliverance. Uh, this one, no, it's a spiritual deliverance. It is a much greater deliverance. The declaration from generation had to be continued. Notice again in verse 19, he says at the very last of that verse, do this in remembrance to me. And we also have this duration like we did in Exodus. They were supposed to tell generation after generation forever. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 11, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We have the same responsibility. And we'll gather at this table and we'll tell this story until Christ returns. So, who do we declare this story to? Just our sons and daughters? Well, if you're faithful, yes. To the church, if you're faithful, yes, we will continue to gather at the table. But we also proclaim it to the nations because Christ died for the sins of mankind. 
And it is the only hope for man. And so we must declare it to all, right? Now, this last question, really last two questions, are very important. The first one is this, who can participate? You remember the first Passover, it was very selective. First Passover was only those males who belonged to the nation of God, only those circumcised males and their families who can participate, right? Well, strangely enough, the church has argued about that subject, I guess, since the very beginning. And what's commonly practiced among our denomination is only those who have been born again, those who have been circumcised, not of flesh, but of heart, because that is what matters, those who belong to the family of God. Others allow everyone to come to the table, but even those who selectively say only those are born again, there has been times in the past where communion or the table was closed for various reasons. I've even done that without you knowing that. Because when there was broken relationships within the church, I would not allow us to come to the table. For the entire year of COVID, we were separated and I could not in good conscience bring us to the table. But I would encourage you in your own heart, don't come to the table. If you're unrepentant in your sin, that's a foolish thing to do. If you're committed to brokenness and division in your heart with others, don't come to the table. Christ died for you. Don't dare come mocking him in your sin thinking that if I hide it, I can continue in it. Close it for yourself. So who can participate? Two thoughts for me stick out in my mind. And that is this. The first thought regards Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 10 when he says this, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ. And then Paul says this, is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ. So Paul brings up this idea that as we come to the table, we're sharing. We're sharing in the blood and we're sharing in the body of Christ. So here's my question. How can you have a share in the body of Christ and how can you have a share in the blood of Christ when the body, when that body and that blood was given for the sake of sin and yet you never come to Christ for forgiveness of sins? How can you share in this when it was given for you and for your sins, yet you've never come to Christ for the sake of forgiveness of your sins. He has nothing to share with you. It just becomes bizarre and empty because there is no sharing whatsoever. My second question is this, and if you look with me in Luke 20, 22, 19, the Lord says this, he, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance to me. So here's my question. How can you remember what you've never known? How can you remember what you have never known? You know, I'm at the time in life where I cannot remember what I used to know. And it's very frustrating. And they tell me it's only going to get worse. But here's the deal. I can never remember what I have never known. It's just not there. So if you've never known Christ, or better yet, have never been known by Christ, it's simply impossible for you to remember what He has done for you 
because you've never known what he has done for you. So as we prepare our hearts coming to the table this morning, let me ask you, do you know him? Because if you don't know him, this is absolutely meaningless. There is nothing within your soul that cries out to you, remember what the Lord has done for you. But even before we come to the table, you can know him in but a moment. You can understand that his broken body and his shed blood was for you. And in your hearts, you can turn from your sins and you can call out to God with a heart filled with thanksgiving. I never knew you died for me. But I'm so thankful for what you have done for me. In an expression of that faith toward God, this table becomes meaningful. And you will always remember what Christ has done to rescue you from the wrath to come and to deliver you from your own sin and your own death. Do you know him? You can now. And you can come to this table by faith. Let's bow our heads.